Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to a panel composed of Father Sean O'Sheridan, TOR, President of Franciscan University of Steubenville, Dr. Kurt Martins, Associate Professor of Canon Law at the Catholic University of America, Jade Henricks, Director of the Congressional Liaison Office for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and Dr. Ann Hendershot, Professor of Sociology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, discussing the topic, The Front Line in the Struggle for Religious Liberty in the U.S. Today. This panel is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Dr. Daniel R. Kempton is the moderator of this panel. The panelists present in this order. Father Sean O'Sheridan, Dr. Kurt Martins, Jade Henricks, Dr. Ann Hendershot. Our first speaker tonight is our Father President, who is speak- sitting to my right, Father Sean O'Sheridan, J.D., J.C.D., Uh, Father Sean is a native of Pennsylvania. He earned his BS initially in pharmacy from the University of Pittsburgh. After working in industry, both as a pharmacist and in in training, he returned for his Juris Doctor from the University of Pittsburgh again in the School of Law in 1990. After practicing medical law for a decade uh, out in San Francisco, was it Sacramento and Pittsburgh, I guess the weather, weather here called him back. It was so nice. So, no, God, not the weather, okay. Um, so after practicing medical law for about a decade, he returned and entered the Franciscan Friar TOR in 2000, which led ultimately to his ordination in 2006. He then attended the Washington Theological Union, from which he received his Master of Divinity in 2007 and completed his education with his receipt of a doctor in canon law from Catholic University of America in 2009. He then served on the faculty of the School of Canon Law at CUA and on the board of trustees for both St. Francis University, our sister school, and Franciscan University, but moved to Franciscan University in fall of 2012 as professor of theology, only to be inaugurated as our sixth president in October of 2013. Our second panelist is Dr. Kurt Martins, who is sitting on the far right, who is an associate professor of canon law at Catholic University of America. Dr. Martins received his initial law degree, his licentiate, and his doctorate of, or doctor of canon law from Catholica Universität Leuven, Belgium. Uh, his teaching research at CUA focuses on Roman Catholic canon law church and state relations, and religious liberty. He has also been involved in the graduate faculty and in this capacity has served as dissertation director for our beloved and most illustrious president, Father Sean. My father doctor. (laughs) His father doctor, yeah. Um, He has published articles in a wide variety of outlets including Ius Ecclesiae, Revue des Droit Canonique, Studia Canonica, The Juris, thank you for doing one in English, uh, Rect, (laughs) Religia, and Summon Leaving and Studies in Church Law. He was the founding editor of RECT and is now the editor of The Jurist. Uh, Since 2008, he has also served as consultant to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Canonical Law. Next to my left, our third, or to the far left is our third panelist, uh, Mr. J. Hendricks Esquire from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. He received his BA in political science from Franciscan University of Steubenville, great choice. Um, Received an MA in catechetics from the University of Notre Dame, still not a bad choice. 
um, received his STL in Systematic Theology from the Dominican House of Studies. Uh, for five years, Mr. Hendricks was responsible for U.S. Congressional Pro-Life and International Justice and Peace Political Advocacy, uh, including advocacy for the USCCB and on religious liberty. He is now coordinating the USCCB's advocacy efforts with the federal government to promote religious liberty and traditional marriage. He's also traveled extensively, particularly on behalf of his work for Catholic Relief Services. Our uh, final panelist to my left is Dr. Ann Hendershot, Professor of Sociology and Director of the Veritas Center here at Franciscan University. Uh, she received her Bachelor and Master of Science at Connecticut Central University, or Central Connecticut University, forgive me. She then received her Doctorate in Sociology at Kent State University. She then began her teaching career at University of Hartford, where she directed the Center for Social Research. She next served at the University of San Diego, where she received her promotions to associate and to full professor, and ultimately served as the chair of the Department of Sociology. In 2007, she moved to King's College in New York as a visiting professor of public policy. Uh, finally, and most importantly from my perspective, in fall 2013, she joined the Franciscan family as professor of sociology and director of our now officially inaugurated Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life. Uh, she has numerous honors and has served on many boards, particularly those related uh, to Catholic education and causes, including the Society for Catholic Social Sciences, uh, the co-sponsor of this event, and the Life Perspectives of San Diego. Uh, her scholarly contributions are considerable, and I wouldn't have time to name them and leave the panel still time for their talks. So I'll pick my five favorites um, and close with that. Uh, included among her books are The Politics of Deviance, 2002, uh, The Politics of Abortion, 2006, uh, The Hookup Culture on Catholic Campuses, 2011, the Status Envy, The Politics of Catholic Higher Education in 2009, and her most recent book, Renewal, How a Generation of Priests and Bishops Are Revitalizing the Catholic Church. So please join me in welcoming our panelists tonight. Thank you, Dr. Kempton. Um, as Dr. said, Dr. Martins is my doctor father, so uh, he taught me everything I know about canon law. Uh, the, the topic for this session of the, uh, uh, the, the uh, conference uh, is entitled Front Line in the Struggle for Religious Liberty in the U.S. Today. Um, and as I thought about what I could talk about, that's certainly the thing that we here at Franciscan University are dealing with uh, in the greatest capacity dealing with religious liberty has to do with the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Uh, which uh, President Barack Obama signed into law on March 23rd of 2010. Um, certainly we've been impacted by what is known commonly as the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare um, and have already been involved in attacks on that, challenges on that, uh, attempts to uh, uh, exempt ourselves from that uh, unsuccessfully as I'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but it's been the subject of much discussion and debate um, in our country this, today and I thought that would be very appropriate for us to spend a few minutes talking about that during my time uh, this evening. Um, main uh, areas I want to talk about is just a brief overview of some of the impact uh, of the Affordable Care Act on us uh, as United States citizens in general, Americans in general. 
then move to some of the discussion which has to do uh, with the health and human services mandate, uh, which is the specific problem that we've been faced with here uh, at the university, uh, the mandate to provide contraceptive coverage um, as part of the health care benefits um, that we would provide to our employees. Um, talking about the legal basis for challenging that, um, and then also talk for uh, a little bit about uh, the various status of the different um, uh, cases that have been brought, uh, primarily on behalf of Catholic universities, but certainly other universities as well, um, and other nonprofit organizations uh, that have been faced with the issue of whether or not to comply with the HHS mandate um, or face severe penalties um, that we'll talk about in a little bit when we we'll ever get to that portion uh, of my discussion. Um, but we begin with a brief overview of the Affordable Care Act, which as I said, uh, President Obama signed into law on March 23rd of 2010. Um, and if you uh, see many of the different provisions that are embodied in the Affordable Care Act, one of them at least has already been litigated all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Um, that has to do with the mandate uh, that requires all persons to have health care coverage. Um, on June 28th of 2012, Chief Justice John Roberts maintained uh, in his decision for the court uh, that since the requirement to purchase health care insurance was a tax rather than a mandate, it would be considered to be constitutional. Um, that doesn't directly impact what we are facing uh, as an institution, a university, in deciding whether or not to comply with the HHS mandate, uh, but it gives us an indication, at least preliminarily, um, that there is some basis for the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Um, in his decision, in his opinion, Chief Justice Roberts said, the Affordable Care Act is constitutional in part and unconstitutional in part. The individual mandate cannot be upheld as an exercise of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. That clause authorizes Congress to regulate interstate commerce, not to order individuals to engage in it. In this case, however, it is reasonable to construe what Congress has done as increasing taxes on those who have a certain amount of income but choose to go without health insurance. Such legislation is within Congress's power to tax. And that case is the National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, which was handed down in 2012. Um, if you look at the federal government's website, they, they say that the Affordable Care Act is supposed to put back into the hands of the consumer their ability to regulate their health care coverage uh, by being able to afford certain services to them um, and not eliminating certain services, such as care for pre-existing conditions or for certain persons um, up until the age of 26. Uh, many of our students can now be covered under their parents' health care policies um, up until the age of 26. For us here at the university, however, the direct uh, threat against our ability to practice our faith, to be able to continue to live out our faith, has been the health and human services mandate to provide coverage for contraceptive use. That came out in August 2011 preliminarily uh, when the Secretary for the Department of Health and Human Services added contraception to a list of preventative services that the Affordable Care Act would cover um, and would require that they would be provided 
without the patient having to pay for any type of copayment uh, for those services rendered. With limited exceptions, whenever they consulted um, to decide what would be included within the services to be provided for preventative care, um, it includes all drugs that the Food and Drug Administration has approved, so, excluded, sorry, um, all drugs that the Food and Drug Administration approves solely for use as abortifacients, um, and it also excluded surgical abortion. But if you look at the provisions of what are specifically included um, in the HHS mandates uh, provision for contraception, um, it does include FDA-approved contraceptives that may prevent implantation of a fertilized egg, and at least one FDA-approved contraceptive known as ELLA um, that is thought to be capable of causing an abortion after the implantation has occurred. And these are certainly serious things that we need to consider as to whether or not we would be able to comply with those mandates, those requirements, and still continue to be a faithful Orthodox university maintaining our fidelity uh, to the teachings of the church and not having to engage in more behavior uh, in actions that are morally irresponsible against the teachings of the church. And how we are involved uh, potentially in being able to uh, provide those types of services um, to the individuals who are enrolled in our health care plan. Um, the uh, the uh, HHS mandate has severe penalties for anyone who chooses not to comply. Um, and it actually provides that anybody who chooses um, not to provide the coverage for the, uh, the contraceptive coverage and some sterilization procedures would be fined $100 per day per beneficiary. We have approximately 450 employees here at Franciscan University. So $100 per day per 450 employees rounds out to almost $16,450,000 a year that we could be penalized if we did not comply with the provision as required um, by the HHS mandate. There's also the option of not providing any health care coverage uh, to employees as well, which from a human resources perspective would not be very beneficial. We certainly want to be able to uh, make sure that our employees have access to health care. But if we would drop all of our health care coverage, uh, there's a penalty for that of $2,000 per employee per year, which would be roughly for us 450 employees, approximately $900,000 uh, in penalties for each year. Um, certainly it's not a, a good option to not provide any health care services for our employees and their families um, and would be difficult for us to continue to try and draw new employees to come and work here at the university not being able to afford those benefits. So even though it's a lesser dollar amount of a penalty, it's really not an attractive option whenever you consider um, being able to have good health care services for our employees. The federal government, whenever you're talking about the HHS mandate, actually categorizes organizations into three categories. The first one uh, is those institutions which are truly religious employers. Um, those persons or those entities that are able to fulfill a three-part test uh, where the religious employer has as its purpose 
to inculcate religion. And it primarily serves people of the same religion and primarily employs people of the same religion. Although we have many Catholics here as both employees and as students, we certainly serve a larger population as well. It's not exclusively Catholics that we minister to here at the university. We ourselves would not uh, qualify, this is falling down, as a religious employer um, to be able to fulfill uh, the, the test for the exemption um, to not have to be able to comply with the HHS mandate. Um, strictly, uh, churches would be a good example of uh, an organization that would not have to comply, a parish, a diocese, uh, a synagogue is another one that the uh, federal government has given as an example. Religious orders would be another example uh, for their own members in carrying out their responsibilities, their activities as a religious order who would also be exempt. But we as a university would not qualify that for that. Uh, when organizations such as ourselves started to comment on and, and find the flaw uh, in this very narrowly tailored definition of who is a religious employer, uh, the Obama administration did come back with what we now know as the exemption um, from the HHS mandate for those persons, I'm sorry, the accommodation for those eligible organizations um, that would qualify as religiously affiliated organizations. The test for a, a, uh, an eligible organization uh, has to do with an entity that is a nonprofit religious organization that would basically not fulfill all of the requirements to be a religious employer, but has some purpose um, as a nonprofit organization in fulfilling some religious obligations and responsibilities. If that nonprofit religious organization wishes to opt out of the uh, HHS mandate, the federal government offered the accommodation uh, to be able to say, to self-certify that the organization objects to the provision of these types of services um, based on religious grounds because they are a religiously affiliated organization. Um, there's a particular form that the organization has to fill out and provide to uh, their health insurance carrier to be able to, um, as the government often says, step aside from providing these types of services. Um, the EBSA Form 700 um, talks about those organizations that on account of religious objections oppose providing coverage for some or all of any contraceptive services that would otherwise be required to be covered. Um, they have to certify that they are organized as a nonprofit entity and that the organization again holds itself out as a religious organization. Many of the organizations, the nonprofit organizations that would fall within this parameter, uh, which as the federal government says would qualify for an accommodation, uh, have objected um, to that accommodation based on the ground that they are complicit in grave moral activity based upon a violation of their religious liberty um, in providing services that are contrary um, to what the church teaches are appropriate um, for the, the, the members of that organization, for the members of the church. And we'll talk about in a, new, in a few minutes the numerous challenges that have been 
brought forth by those persons that fit within that category. The last category is the for-profit organizations, the Hobby Lobbies, the Conestoga Woods, that were, their case was argued before the United States Supreme Court last week, or two weeks ago now. Um, they are for-profit companies, so they do not qualify as either um, uh, the uh, religious employer or the eligible organization for the accommodation. And the government has said they must comply with the HHS mandate or face those penalties that I talked about earlier. When we look at the current status of the legal challenges, to date, there have been approximately 94 lawsuits that have been filed to challenge the HHS mandate. And there have been a mixed review uh, of the uh, outcomes of those cases based on whether or not they're for-profit entities, nonprofit entities that would be subject uh, potentially to the accommodation for the eligible organizations. If we look at uh, Catholic universities um, that have participated in legal challenges to the HHS mandate, there have been a number who have done so. Uh, Belmont Abbey College uh, was the first. Uh, Ave Maria University also challenged. The Catholic University of America filed a challenge. Thomas Aquinas College in California filed a challenge. We here at Franciscan University filed a challenge. The University of Notre Dame, the University of St. Francis, the Aquinas College, and Wyoming Catholic College is the most recent one um, to file a lawsuit. There is just being filed back in December of 2013. There are a number of other faith-based institutions that have also filed lawsuits to challenge the HHS mandate. So it's not just specifically a Catholic issue. Um, it is a faith-based issue uh, where the people in these organizations want to continue to be able to practice their faith, to be able to operate um, in a manner consistent with their own religious beliefs. Back in 2012, we here at Franciscan University filed our complaint um, here in Ohio. Um, it was eventually dismissed on March 22nd, 2013. Um, because the, uh, the judge in the case determined that the university had not yet been harmed by the action of the HHS mandate. Uh, we here uh, qualify for a provision which is known as being grandfathered and is specifically provided for um, in the provisions of the act. Um, as long as our health care coverage is not changed significantly, um, we can continue to operate under those same healthcare policies that we have without having to comply with the HHS mandate. We have continued uh, for the past few years holding in that grandfathered status. Uh, so once our case was dismissed, rather than facing the possibility of the judge dismissing our case with prejudice so that we could not come back and challenge the mandate again in the future, we are basically in a holding pattern until we have to act uh, and are faced with the decision of whether to comply, which we're not going to do, or face those fines, the penalties that are inherent in the mandate provisions itself. So once that um, is resolved, we'll have to continue to move forward um, in the future. Um, the most recent development that has happened, which is one I wanted to bring to your attention, has to do with the Catholic University of America. They have filed two complaints now. Their first complaint was dismissed also 
because their action was not ripe yet is the terminology that is used. Uh, but they refiled because they were faced with the possibility of having to comply uh, with the mandate. When their um, complaint was dismissed again, it was actually cross summary judgments and dismissals, motions to dismiss back in December, they immediately uh, uh, appealed to the DC Circuit Court of Appeal and then they filed a petition for a writ of certiorari to the United States Supreme Court. So the CUA case is the one that is furthest along in the process um, and is our hope that the, the court will take it up um, to be able to address these decisions that are conflicting out there in the courts and be able to come to a resolution. Um, as Robbie George said this afternoon, I think all of us are very optimistic that the court will ultimately rule in favor of institutions such as the Catholic universities um, who are faced with this decision. But again, it's, it's a, a, a thing that we don't know the ultimate outcome until the decision comes. We continue to pray and hope that the court will rule in our favor um, and ask for your prayers as well as we continue to fight the fight here at Franciscan University as well. There we go. Good, uh, good, I was going to say good afternoon, but we are already in the evening. Um, Father Sheridan was indeed my doctoral student, but not only my doctoral student, also my colleague at CUA. Uh, we, um, had, we were blessed to have him on the faculty until he was, quote unquote, stolen uh, from us by you. But you are truly blessed that you have him. Obedience. Uh, <laughs> obedience, yes, right. Uh, you're very truly blessed that you have him as your president. Um, I do hope that you allow him uh, to continue to publish uh, by giving him the time to do so and to give him some research, research time. Tonight's uh, title of our discussion, of our panel of discussion, is The Frontline in the Struggle for Religious Liberty in the U.S. Today. Let me start with a little anecdote, a little story. Um, stories are always um, interesting to start with, especially at this time of the evening. Um, in 2012, we had our first fortnight for freedom organized by the USCCB, sponsored by the USCCB. And I went to the event uh, in downtown uh, Washington organized by the Archdiocese. And afterwards, a friend asked me um, if I understood what was going on. And I probably must have given him a look uh, that could have killed him. Uh, and he tried to correct his mistake or whatever, his error. And he said, or he asked, well, did you study the history of the United States? And from there, our conversation went downhill. <laughs> we were still good friends. Why do I tell you that story? Um, you probably hear my accent and from the, um, it's not Irish. Um, <laughs> and from the uh, introduction, you probably um, could have figured out that I'm not American. Uh, that I'm European. The story is important, why? Because religious liberty does not end at a national border. It is something that is important everywhere and at all times. 
so that's my introduction. That is something that is very important to uh, understand. And my remarks are going to be from that perspective, some international perspective given to the or brought to the discussion. The first point I want to focus on is, but what is religious liberty for? Or to throw in a Latin quote, in omnibus respice finem, in all things you have to respect the goal. When I teach, and Father will re uh, recall that, when I teach uh, in canon law um, or everywhere, I always emphasize that it's important to not, not only know the law, but also understand where we come from, why we have uh, legislation in this or that direction. And that is also true for religious liberty. What is religious liberty for? A few years ago, and actually the discussion is still ongoing, in France, there is that, or was that debate about the Islamic headscarf in the public square. And the whole discussion about what it was to be a quote unquote lay state. And the arguments that were given were, well, uh, we can't allow religious symbols in the public square. Um, focused, the discussion focused on the Islamic headscarf, but actually it was also applicable to all other religious symbols. Uh, a public officer could not wear a little cross uh, or some other sign that could refer to a religion. What was the argument used? Well, as a state, we have to be neutral, or as a public officials, we have to be neutral, and we cannot choose sides. What's behind that reasoning is we have to protect the state against religions. That's not what religious liberty is for. Religious liberty, if you look at it from a historical perspective, does not protect the state against religions. It's the other way around. But we seem to have forgotten that in our current debates. It was most recently in a country that will remain unnamed, a discussion about funding uh, or changing the legislation about funding churches. It's a European country, as you can imagine. Um, and the bishops had a discussion with the member of government that was responsible for changing the law. And there were only a few changes that were going to be made in a law, in the legislation. We all know that a few changes can make a huge difference. Uh, you only need to change sometimes a comma or put a comma somewhere and you change the whole meaning of something. And the argument the member of government used was, well, the changes were approved by a democratic decision in parliament, by a democratic majority. You're not against democracy, are you, under the pretext of religious liberty? If you're going to accept these changes, then we're back um, a few uh, decades ago, uh, and we know where that led us. Um, I don't think I have to go in that. Uh, I don't have to explain that uh, in detail. So norms can be only understood if their historical roots um, are known. Otherwise, we get to very strange interpretations. Actually, what is religious liberty for? We find that same idea 
in the uh, declaration of the Second Vatican Council on Religious Liberty Dignitatis Humani. If you would ask the, even the average uh, Catholic what is in Dignitatis Humani, um, I would not want to be responsible for the responses you get. We probably would have some very strange ideas about the church's position on religious liberty. The church did not say that it is all the same what you believe. No. What is in that document on religious liberty is basically the focus on the duty of the state. The state has to guarantee religious liberty, and only in a few um, exceptional cases, religious liberty might be limited for those reasons that, are, that were mentioned um, this morning by uh, Professor George, uh, national security and other things. When we look at what religious liberty is for, and we look at the history of, of Europe, and then the reaction you had here in the First Amendment, well, the First Amendment basically is there because we didn't want here to have those religious wars we had in Europe for centuries that took enormous lives. So we need to focus on that. What is religious liberty for? Uh, it is not there to protect the state. It is there to protect against the state and to focus on the duties of the state. How many minutes do I have left over? Five? Okay, seven. Okay, good. What's then the role of the state? When we, look at, when we talk about religious liberty, it is often reduced to you as an individual can profess, can have a religious belief and keep it for you. That is not what it is. Religious liberty, and if you look at jurisprudence um, across borders, European jurisprudence, American jurisprudence, uh, there are certain duties that come with religious liberty. I want to uh, just give a few, um, perhaps, to um, start uh, some discussion later onwards. Um, one of the uh, most important ones is the principle of neutrality that the state has to have. That is, you don't, as a state, favor religions. You make sure that every religious denomination can flourish within uh, your uh, jurisdiction. Neutrality has a counterpart. That is, um, non-interference in internal affairs. Governments are sometimes tempted, civil authorities are sometimes tempted to interfere in religious affairs, sometimes to solve a case or a problem. Well, governments are not there to solve religious problems. They are there uh, under religious liberty norms to make sure that denominations can coexist peacefully in society. Um, the European Court for Human Rights in Strasbourg has developed very interesting jurisprudence there. Um, give you one example. In uh, a certain country, there was a discussion about the appointment of a religious leader in an Islamic community. And the government there decided to intervene and to, there were actually two uh, leaders appointed or elected 
because of two rivaling factions within the community. And the government decided to decide which one was the truly elected one. And the court said, no, you can't do that uh, because religious liberty doesn't allow you to do that. You can only at max say, okay, both communities have their rights and we will keep peace between them. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's the only thing that a government can do or should do when it comes to struggles. Well, there are something else, a third point, namely, a government also has to make sure, peaceful coexistence, that you protect groups, minorities and majorities, against aggressors from inside or outside. Um, there was, again, in that uh, same uh, European court, an interesting case uh, of a, um, um, uh, in a particular country, where a group of Jehovah's Witnesses was attacked uh, violently. Uh, the court case goes into a very detail uh, about uh, what kind of injuries they all suffered from, and I will not uh, tell anything about that. I don't want to be responsible for gross details. But uh, they were attacked by a group of Orthodox uh, believers led by a de defrocked Orthodox priest. Okay, these things can happen. I don't justify them. What is then the task of the state? Well, police authorities, uh, official authorities, didn't intervene. They let it happen. And the European courts condemned the country where it happened by saying, your responsibility is to protect religious uh, liberty and thus to make sure that it is not only a peaceful coexistence, but in, case of, uh, in a case like this, uh, you have to make sure that your believers are protected against outside aggressors and your police force should have intervened, should not have looked the other way, should have intervened at that moment. There is another element uh, sometimes, or not sometimes, another element that um, comes from uh, religious liberty that is that governments, civil authorities, have an obligation to act, for instance, in areas that you would not suspect. If you say that there is religious liberty, then you also have to make sure that the legal vehicles are present for religious groups to organize themselves in a decent way, meaning making sure that you have all kinds of legislation that affords religious groups to organize them under the law um, as a corporation so, or something like that so that they, can co that they can legally exist in a society. And last but not least, and then I will finish, um, when it comes to religious liberty, uh, exceptions to religious liberty should be highly limited. That is, they should not uh, be, um, they should be, remain exceptions only in very limited cases, such as national security, uh, you could limit it, uh, but not in other uh, cases. Thank you. First, I just want to thank my alma mater for inviting me to this conference. It's always nice to come back to a place that you consider home, and this was very much a home for me in, in important years of my life. 
I came here, uh, if I may just also uh, say a word of acknowledgement to Dr. Grayson. I came here when I was 18 years old knowing nothing uh, about a lot of things, uh, <laughs> but knowing nothing about the permanent things in particular. And it was his classes that shaped me in a permanent way around the permanent things. Uh, and so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I wasn't at the time real pleased about the volume of reading he assigned, <laughs> but I've, I've recently come to forgive him for that. Um, also, Father, you might like to know that for years and years at the Bishop's Conference, the largest block of graduates were from Notre Dame. A few years ago, Franciscan University has taken that over in terms of the number of people who work at the conference, and so I think the bishops themselves recognize that we did have to uh, I am not an academic, let me just tell you uh, in advance, uh, so I will speak about practical things uh, that I do kind of in my daily life. Uh, as was mentioned in, in the introduction, I'm the Executive Director of Government and Relations for the Bishops' Conference, which puts me in daily touch with, with Congress and the administration, uh, and of course with uh, the bishops. Uh, needless to say, these last uh, few years on religious liberty have been uh, both interesting and a challenge. Uh, if, if my job depended upon me being successful, I think I would have been fired a while ago. Uh, but we you know, work faithfully, and uh, in the end, we hope that we will make progress, but right now things are, are quite challenged. I'll speak in some detail about the HHS mandate here in a moment, but maybe it might be helpful to have kind of a broader picture of where things stand on religious liberty efforts. It's interesting to note that the Bishops' Conference itself did not have a committee on religious liberty until about oh, three years ago or so. And that speaks to the fact that uh, while it was a priority, of course, uh, there just weren't the challenges uh, that, we're face, that we face today. And so there wasn't the need for the amount of resources and uh, time uh, to put into the issue. But um, three years ago or so, the bishops recognized that this was an issue that needed not only immediate attention, but I think uh, attention over a long term, so it established the committee uh, to help address uh, some of these issues. Uh, the first area that this surfaced was with the Affordable Care Act, uh, but there were some other areas too. And of course, the HHS mandate, as, as Father mentioned, came out of the Affordable Care Act. What's interesting is uh, if you followed the news at the time, uh, the Bishops' Conference itself was very involved in uh, some of the negotiations over the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Democrats in the House uh, needed a block of, uh, of their pro-life members uh, to, to vote for passage of the bill. And, and, and it was such a close margin that this block was going to determine the success or failure of the vote. And the debate at that time largely re revolved around abortion funding. And some of you may be familiar with, with how all that played out in some detail. And that's where a lot of our efforts were put. Uh, in the end, we opposed the bill because of the abortion funding piece of it, but also because for three reasons. For the abortion funding, uh, also the way it, uh, it treated undocumented immigrants, it does not permit, the Affordable Care Act does not permit them to go into the individual exchange, which we felt was unjust. But also for, we, we raised concerns about religious liberty, that there were no conscience protections. And even at that time, it's important to make the distinction, there, there was a fair amount of pressure on the bishops to, uh, I would say, settle for defending a position of just the rights of religious institutions and, and faith. But the bishops understood that it also belongs to individuals. Uh, and we see that with the Hobby Lobby case and other cases. 
that it's not, uh, rights of conscience don't simply belong to, to religious institutions, but they belong to individuals as well. And early on, the, the bishops uh, uh, discussed, deliberated, but made the decision that they were going to defend the fuller, uh, def fuller approach to religious liberty. And in our negotiations with particularly House members, but this also, of course, came up in the Senate, uh, we would talk about the abortion issue, we would talk about uh, immigration issue, but when we would talk about religious liberty issue, eyes would glaze over. Uh, one, I think people were just um, tired of, of, of the battle. I mean, this, this was protracted, protracted over, over months and months of quite intense negotiations. Uh, but also, I, I think a lot of the officers that we were speaking with, in fact, many of our allies didn't see that there was a real problem with religious liberty. They just thought, well, well you're, you're crying wolf. This, this, you're, you're creating a crisis that doesn't exist. And we couldn't point, of course, at that point to any, um, any abuses because they hadn't happened yet. But we were raising the concerns that the law itself didn't protect us. Uh, and then, of course, within the context of what was seen as simply contraception, but we know it's more than that, you know, eyes would glaze over doubly. I mean, the last thing they wanted to do was would touch an issue related to contraception. But we raised the issue, it's, it's in our documentation, it's in our letter that we opposed the bill over this because we didn't feel that there were protections. And as it turned out, in the negotiations, three weeks before final passage in the Senate, uh, which was Christmas Eve, I remember that night quite well, uh, there were some long nights, but three weeks prior to that, Senator Mikulski, a self-proclaimed Catholic, a senator from Maryland, inserted into the bill, it was amendment and, and it was passed, this language about the preventive services with the intention of, we thought, kind of moving in this direction uh, towards the HHS mandate. It all ended up kind of maturing at a much faster pace than we, we somewhat expected. Uh, but we anticipated this, uh, but, but unfortunately, Congress, uh, members of Congress, were not at that point really interested in, they just wanted to get a bill passed and they, the focus was on the abortion question. They felt they had addressed that. Of course, it wasn't. Uh, but then, you know, after the bill was enacted, then you had the regulations from the administration. Uh, I will say that in response to this, and the first one who responded on, on, the, on the legislative side is another graduate from Francis University, Congressman Fortenberry from, from Nebraska. Uh, he came to us uh, with draft language for a bill, the, the Respect for Rights of Conscience Act, which was the first draft language that anticipated responding to this problem. Uh, so you know, I think he had a good formation to here, here too, and, and, and we, we, uh, we have a good working relationship with him. And, and he, he, um, it's nice to work with somebody who understands the church from the inside. It, it doesn't happen too often on Capitol Hill. Uh, but he's one of the members, and uh, it, he and I will chat from time to time about our experience here at Franciscan University, which of course, shapes both what both of us do on a daily basis. Let me, I'll get back to the HHS mandate here in a moment, but there are other issues also that we see with this administration in particular uh, that threaten our religious liberty. Uh, you may remember a couple years ago, uh, it was in the news a bit, uh, the Washington Post had a front page story on it, New York Times ran a story on it, but there was a very large uh, anti human trafficking program that, that actually the Bishop's Conference itself uh, ran. And we scored extremely high in terms of the reviews of how that program was implemented. And uh, we, that contract was not renewed 
uh, to us. And we suspected why, but then there was an oversight hearing in the House uh, after the Republicans had taken control of the House. And it became very clear that the reason why it was not renewed uh, was because our unwillingness to provide the full range of what's called reproductive health services, uh, even though that really had nothing to do with the program, not once were we ever asked to provide those services. Uh, and so then the contract was divided out with three other organizations who did not have the capacity or the expertise to provide the services that we have. So, you know, here's an example of, I think a tragic example of where victims are victimized twice, uh, not just, you know, in, in the initial uh, you know, horrible circumstances that brought them into the programs, but now they're being serviced by, by and in the oversight hearings, we found out these, these organizations uh, scored on a scale of 100, about 20 points lower than we did and actually did not qualify to provide the services, but because you know, just ideological commitment, I suppose, uh, to this agenda that, that the program was turned over to other folks. Now, they may very well at this point be, you know, have, have gotten up to speed and been able to build up their capacity and maybe providing good services, but at the time, uh, th this was another example of kind of, I think, an ideology trumping uh, the, the, the uh, public good. Other examples would be uh, in, in the wake of the Hurricane Sandy, uh, FEMA, which provides a lot of the resources for rebuilding a community, started interpreting regulations in a way that would not prohibit, pro, would not allow houses of worship to apply for loans and these sorts of things. Um, and this really affected particularly the Jewish community on, on Long Island their synagogues and, and a lot of our churches. And what's ironic in all of this, sadly ironic, is that the churches and the synagogues were often ground zero in terms of the first responders. They're the ones who knew who were homebound. They were the ones who were providing the food and shelter uh, day one and day two, providing the resources for the uh, emergency responders. And yet, uh, we've been struggling now to get conscious language to, um, to protect us, and we haven't, we haven't been able to do that. Um, and then, of course, there are the growing threats relative to the marriage question and what's called uh, employment discrimination law. For a long time, there's been a push uh, to have the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which prohibits uh, discrimination uh, for organizations to, um, to not hire somebody because of their sexual orientation, or in, or in the most recent draft of the bill, sexual identity. Uh, we've been able to hold that off for the time being, but you know, momentum is growing for this. And if that should pass, I mean, that will uh, dramatically change the landscape within which our charitable organizations function. And it'll be very difficult for us to be able to uh, work within uh, this environment. Of course, the administration has done some things unilaterally uh, on the administrative level in terms of requiring um, so-called protections for, for uh, uh, homosexuals and people with same-sex attractions. And then on the state level, we, of course, we have what has happened with adoption service providers. We have in Massachusetts and Illinois and in D.C. and growing threats elsewhere where adoption providers, Catholic charities in particular, uh, most specifically, have been stripped from their capacity to provide adoption services because of their uh, unwillingness to uh, place children in same-sex households. And again, here we have victims uh, 
the children uh, are victimized from the ability to be able to get good uh, homes because some of these places uh, in Massachusetts, D.C., and Illinois, the Catholic charities are sometimes the lar some of the larger providers of, of the adoption services, and yet there's an ideology that's just driving this without consideration of the common good. Uh, getting conscience protections uh, in these places is very difficult. We, we, we have a bill that we've been drafting and we're trying to get introduced here in the next couple of weeks that will address this, but getting it through this Congress is basically impossible with the current landscape. It, we, we have the challenge all along here of, uh, and, and please don't take this as a, as a partisan critique, but, but with these issues, we have a House that is willing to work with us and we could get a number of bills through, but we're, the obstacle is the Senate right now. And as the makeup of the Senate as it is right now, uh, it's just impossible to get things through. Uh, but, but we continue to try. Uh, let, let me turn quickly to the HHS mandate. When the, the administration first proposed uh, the mandate, it was a temporary uh, and offered review and, and whatnot. And it went through kind of, I think, two different versions of it before we got the final rule. And of course, we were in dialogue with the administration. We were meeting with the lawyers. We were meeting with the policy folks uh, with the hope that we could at least shape the outcome to a better position, if, if, if not fix it altogether. What we found, quite surprisingly, is that they actually moved in the opposite direction. Uh, we have very, very good lawyers at the Bishop's Conference. And, and you know, in good faith, we were explaining what the law does, and we were exposing a couple of loopholes in that, and so they closed the loopholes on us. Uh, and, and it's maddening. And, and when we speak to them about the, about the mandate, it, it's this, um, uh, somebody earlier spoke about the radical enlightenment. I mean, that, that's, in some respects, I feel like that's what we're in now when we're speaking with some of these officials, not all of them with the administration, but some of them, they don't even have an appreciation for our perspective. You're the, you know, they consider us the radicals because we just want to keep kind of the business as usual. It's, it's, it's not we're looking for extra protections. We just want to keep the protections where they were. So we worked with the, with the administration. We got nowhere. Uh, our best hope, of course, in the courts. Uh, those things continue to, to uh, move through the courts. And, and so far, the success rate has been quite good. And the prospects there look pretty good. But who knows? And, and the, the difficult thing there, though, is the relief is going to come too late. I mean, there are some institutions, hopefully, Franciscan University can keep the grandfather's status. But we're probably not going to get relief from the Supreme Court or a decision from the Supreme Court until June of 2015. And between then and now, there are going to be a number of institutions who are going to have to figure out what they're going to do. So that creates a problem for us. On, with, with Congress, uh, again, we know we've had an opportunity with, with uh, the House, and the House has always been willing to pass language uh, that was acceptable to us. The problem was getting it through the Senate. Uh, they just, we just didn't have the numbers over there. So the strategy was always to attach a rider, uh, an amendment, to a must-pass piece of legislation. There are a number of false starts, uh, but the last uh, opportunity we had was this past January, and we actually, it went, it went uh, largely uh, unreported, but we actually came very close to getting a deal on this. Uh, without going into all the details, it was reported by Politico and a couple other folks, but um, January 1st, you may remember that the Little Sisters of the Poor got uh, injective relief from Justice Sotomayor. 
That put a lot of wind in our sails. And up to about two weeks moving up to that, we were laying the groundwork, talking to senators and members of Congress. The House was, was agreeable. They said, well, we'll, we'll do what you want, uh, which was at that point, we had drafted language that just provided a delay for the mandate, not overturning it, but just a delay till the courts ruled. So we felt it was very modest. Uh, and then, uh, but we had to find a path forward in the Senate. This House wasn't going to act and put it on, on the appropriations package, which was being passed second week of January, unless we found a path forward in the Senate. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but, but uh, we did get kind of a sign-off from the Senate Democratic leadership, uh, surprisingly, uh, but, but it was contingent upon the, the uh, President signing off on it. And as I understand it, from people who are very close to the negotiations, this was the last issue on the table. Uh, all along, the president, uh, as it was reported, uh, was asking for a significant amount of money, over a billion dollars, for the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Speaker Boehner was unwilling to give it to him, but then, then in the end, as I understand, um, offered him the, the $1.2 billion in exchange for the delay. So we, I actually, one night, kind of went to bed thinking we might, might have a victory here, and, and he turned it down. So uh, it shows us how committed they are to this issue. So I, I think we've run the course on the administration, we've run the course on the Congress. It's all up to the courts now in terms of how it plays out. But as it was said earlier, regardless, I think some permanent damage is done because there's a whole culture here that now finds some of this stuff acceptable. And uh, the good news out of this, and I'll close with this, uh, the, the good news out of all of this, and there is some good news, is that it has united the bishops in a way that I've never seen before. The bishops are more energized, more committed, more united about this issue, which then, of course, I think flows over into other areas. Uh, that I, I, I'm, you know, I think the Bishops' Conference and the body of bishops are, are committed to this for the long haul. And really, it's been, been a privilege to be working with them through this. Uh, they've provided the leadership, but their leadership isn't going anywhere. Uh, so, so we're in this for as long as it takes. Well, it's strange for me to be on this panel. It's called On the Front Lines. And when I told my husband I was on a panel that's on the front lines in the religious freedom debate, he laughed because he said, you're not on the front lines. And he's right. But we talked about it a little bit. He said, well, you're kind of on the battlefield. He said, you're kind of in the back. You're the one with the bugle mobilizing the troops. And that is the way I see myself kind of with the bugle saying, pay attention, folks, because that's what I write about. If I didn't write, I'd probably be crazy, because I'm already a little crazy. But the writing really helps, because I feel like I need to mobilize people. And this really started for me in terms of religious freedom in Connecticut. We have a house in Connecticut. We're there all summer. And it feels like home, because I grew up in Connecticut. Met my husband there almost 40 years ago. And so it's home for us. And in March of 2009, the state of Connecticut moved to take over the Catholic Church. Not any Protestant churches, not any synagogues, just the Catholic Church. These two lawmakers, Lawler, one, Michael Lawler was one of them, and the others, uh, Andrew McDonald, both Catholic proposed a bill, it was Bill 1098 in 2009, 
an act modifying corporate laws relating to certain religious corporations. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? Certain religious corporations. It was just Catholic, the Catholic Church. Had this bill passed, it would have required that a corporation be organized in connection with any Connecticut Roman Catholic Church in the state by filing in the office of the Secretary of State. The Archbishop or the Bishop of the Diocese would serve as an ex officio board member of the corporation, but could not vote on any issues. He could sit there, but have no say in this corporation of how the church would be run. The corporation, there's four parts. The corporation would have a board of directors consisting of not fewer than seven and not more than 13 lay members. So all lay and the bishop. Number four, the board members would all be elected from among the lay members of the parish. Now, according to the Senator McDonald, the impetus behind the bill was what he called the worst case of financial mismanagement by a church he'd ever seen. And he claimed to have broad popular support for this. And his cohort in crime um, brought up the, there had been a priest recently who had embezzled some money from a church in Darien to support a lavish lifestyle with his same-sex partner. It was a hideous case. And so they generalized from that case to say, we need to take over this church because it's being run into the ground. I mean, in local press reports, McDonald claimed that his constituents asked for his help to address the priestly scandals in the state. But there's really much more to this story. This did not start with the two lawmakers, although they were, they were happy to help this group of Catholics who were disgruntled Catholics kind of the radical progressives that Professor Lee talked about earlier. Um, they were disgruntled Catholics because they wanted more say in running the church. Uh, some of them were voice of the faithful members, um, which has a huge chapter in Bridgeport, in the Bridgeport Diocese, and have been lobbying to um, have the right to choose their own bishop, to change the structure of the church. And I can't say that the Voice of the Faithful wrote this bill. I can't say that because they've already come after me because I tried to say that and their lawyers threatened me. So I don't say that they wrote this bill. But I will say that the bill mirrors a 2005 constitution of Voice of the Faithful that I got a hold of on their website. It's not like I had to do detective work. Um, almost word for word the bill mirrors the 2005 Voice of the Faithful Constitution, which required that they would get to choose their bishops and they would control all of the finances of the diocese, the laity um, of this Voice of the Faithful subgroup. So I, I say again, while I cannot claim that Voice of the Faithful, <laughs> make sure we get that, had a hand in writing the actual legislation, the demands mirror in their annual report, 2005, Voice of the Faithful, Bridgeport Chapter Structural Change Committee, and that was approved by the National Voice of the Faithful, it wasn't just this one, and they continue their commitment today to denigrating the power or the leadership or the authority of the church. They're even going after Pope Francis, claiming that the Pope does not see that holding bishops accountable for cover-ups and release of secret files are essential for true reform. So they had a big press release denigrating Pope 
the Pope. I mean, it's clear to most faithful Catholics that it is doctrine that this bill was targeting. And it was a bill that only targeted Catholic churches. McDonald, the two legislators, McDonald and Lawler, are both Catholic and both gay men and outspoken advocates for same-sex marriage. Both have been tireless in their efforts to introduce same-sex marriage in the state of Connecticut, and both have been critical of the Catholic Church's stand on marriage and opposition to same-sex marriage. And Bishop Laurie courageously said to a reporter for the Hartford Current, and told others too, he told a newspaper reporter that he believed, and this is a quote from Bishop, then Archbishop, now he's Archbishop, we miss him in Connecticut, the proposed, this is Bishop Laurie saying, the proposed state takeover of the governance of the Catholic Church is an effort to silence the church on important issues of the day, especially with regard to marriage. Bishop Laurie fought back on the front line hard, really hard. And he had a, a media that was hostile to him, wouldn't cover this issue fairly, wouldn't publish anything that was balanced but he was able to mobilize Catholics to get on buses the day this bill was going to be presented, this 1098, hundreds of buses throughout the state um, to write their legislators to do whatever they could, whatever it would take. And he single-handedly defeated this bill. I mean, he didn't just defeat the bill. He made the two legislators so scared that they didn't even show up on the day that the bill was, because he knew that they knew that these buses were going to be waiting for them. We were going to be there in that parking lot. And they were afraid. And I think Archbishop Laurie is one of the most courageous men I know. I just finished a book um, with my co-author called Renewal. And he's one of the bishops we highlight in that book as one of the transformational bishops that Jade talked about. They are amazing, and we are so blessed to have the bishops we have. He was so courageous and inspired all of us. I mean, gave us courage we didn't know we had. And it's not like I was on, I was just one of many Catholics that were part of this. I wrote an article for the Hartford Current, um, an op-ed, and somehow it got in. And the woman on the op-ed page was so mad that one of her lesser editors allowed my article to get in that, because I said the Voice of the Faithful had a hand in this. She was so mad that she did a major retraction um, saying that, what I, that my article was just nonsense, that Voice of the Faithful had nothing to do with it. But Voice of the Faithful, one of their leaders, Gerald Brenner, um, was an editor at the Hartford Current. He's retired now. So she must have heard from him after my article. So I, I kind of take some pleasure in that. <laughs> made me very happy. So on the day of the hearing, the cowardly lawmakers stayed home, I wrote here. They have not tried this again, not at all, because of the front line offensive mounted by Bishop Laurie and the faithful Catholics in the state of Connecticut. I was, it was surprising to me because Catholics are very quiet in Connecticut. We kind of just go to mass. We don't look at each other. We just go home. We'd, but this was something extraordinary that he was able to do. And he was able to do it with his priests because 
they recognize a transformational leader. And so he's kind of the star of our book. I mean, there are many, but he's extraordinary, and he's heading our ad, ad hoc committee at the USCCB. But they'll be back. I mean, not these lawmakers, but there will still be attempts to take over our church because there are still so many to gain by silencing our church. And that's why we just can't allow it. I mean, the, the feminists will be there lobbying for ordination. Those who want to be female priests, they'll be there. And by denigrating the church and continuing to harp on these clergy abuse cases that have been addressed a decade ago, and the bishops have done everything they possibly can, but they're still there. Now, in the Bridgeport Diocese just two weeks ago, SNAP was in town and Voice of the Faithful picketing our new bishop's residence because he's not, he met with Voice of the Faithful and he told them, I'm sorry, we can't have women priests. And I thought, it, I thought he shouldn't have met with them, but he's, he's very cordial, very generous, very kind. I would have advised him against it, but I'm not his advisor, because he was trying to be pastoral. He's a wonderful bishop. And the people he met with one week, the next week they were in his front lawn with placards, angry, saying that he's hiding things in the diocese. So they'll keep coming back. And it's going to be difficult to work with them, but the bishops know how to handle this now. Um, but it's sad, I think, when members of our own church are working against us. It just makes the battle that much harder if we're not in this together. But as uh, Professor Grasso said, we're in a culture war, and it's going to be a long, protracted war, and it's not going to end. The only way it would end is if one side surrenders, and we're certainly not surrendering, and I don't think they are either. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.